Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky. It is Wednesday the 7th? Yes. Nice of March. Uh, a lot to, lot to talk about today. Um, and we will start here. We've got some famous movies we're going to get into and all kinds of fun. Really things. a famous movie. Movie, really. Yes, that's true. But it could spark conversation inevitably about other movies. Kobe won an Oscar. Kobe did win an Oscar. Um, which has sparked some conversation that Kobe probably doesn't like. <laughs> I'm sure Kobe knew it was coming. Uh, he probably did. Uh, but let's start here, Andy. Brandon Ingram out for at least a week. He's already missed uh, Monday's game against Portland. He'll miss Friday's game against the Nuggets, or tonight, Wednesday's game against Orlando, Friday's game against the Nuggets, and might play Sunday against Cleveland, but I'm not counting on it. I would be very surprised. There is there is no upside to rushing Ingram back from this injury. It's my understanding this is the type of injury that can lead to other ones. Hips. Yeah, Hips and just, groins and Yeah, ask Isaiah how that good. goes. By just, the way, you know, I mean Isaiah, you know, you, I mean not to panic people over this, but Isaiah's hip injury that required surgery, I believe was initially diagnosed as a sports hernia. And then they they went under the hood a little bit more and discovered that or, well, that's, that's or it a, made it worse. That's not what Ingram has. No, 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 but my but my but, point being, well, oh, right. like groin. Think, right, my point right. being, groin and hips, hips are related. Connected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I or or uh, Thomas kept playing through the sports hernia, which led to hip problems. Is my understanding. I don't care if my hernia is a sports related hernia, work related. You know, whatever. I hear hernia. I'm shutting her down. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not going to keep playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you got to be super careful with hips, uh, whether you're 20 or I don't know 93, unless you're Shakira, right? <laughs> and you shake them. <laughs> she just caution to the wind, baby. <laughs> um, so the leg, it's it's a it's a bummer, mostly because. Not because it necessarily stunts the Lakers' long-term prospects and all that, but it just it, it, whenever the 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 good guys are out and Hart's already gone probably for the year, but if if nothing else, most of it, it makes it so what you're looking at on the floor just doesn't feel nearly as relevant as it does when everybody's playing. And then particularly because the Lakers had won 17 of, I think, 24 going into the Portland game, um, which they played, I thought, very well given what they had available. And at least for three or four more games, you look at it, gosh, you know, just sucks that this momentum that they have could be stunted by not having enough good players available to be competitive. I mean, we saw a lot of this actually last year. I mean, you know, the For ten sure. the ten and ten start. Even if you don't believe that that truly was indicative of how good the team was, they were definitely playing well. They were playing hard. They, they were competitive, to be, and they seemed to be really enjoying playing together. And then guys started getting hurt, and all that momentum derailed, and that team wasn't good enough to try to pick up from where they left off. This team is obviously better. You know, it's a little bit more experienced, even with all the youth. You know, it's it, Luke Walton is more experienced. Everybody has a little bit more that they can lean on when it comes to trying to, you know, get through these patches without either Lonzo or now without Ingram. So I don't think it's going to be disra- derailed as much as last year. But you're right, Brian. It, it is a bummer to not be able to see them, not to be able to see as many games as possible at full strength. Right, they have... They have a little bit more, they have better veterans around, if nothing else, to kind of see them through. But you don't even have to, I don't even think you have to go back to last year. Go back to the nine game losing streak when Lonzo was out and, and, and Lopez was out and Nance missed some time. And just, they don't, they don't have enough dudes. You look at this, look at the lineup they put out against Portland. It was Randall, Kuzma, Lopez, Lonzo, KCP. 
credible enough, I guess, as a starting lineup. But the the four guys that came off the bench, it struggling, but he's a legitimate player in the league. Travis Ware, Ivica Zubats, Tyler Ennis. Yeah, that's it. Yep. I mean, Zubats has played well, I think, since being put back in the lineup and shown, okay, you know, he's kind of put himself back on the radar as as a potential player again. But Travis Ware, if it's a Zubats, Tyler Ennis as your as your you know six through nine, seven through nine, that's not good. No, by and, the- and that's not going to be competitive with most teams in the NBA. And then you know, go back to the starting lineup: Randall Kuzma, Lopez, Ball, KCP as a starting lineup. Ain't great either. On a related note, I mean, at this point, it would actually be just more charitable and kind and humane if the Lakers just told Deng, you don't need to come anymore. Like, you don't actually... He's been active. He's been... But I'm saying, like, he's been active. <laughs> so they, they went over, they they brought him his uniform, they went... But, to blow but, off the But you know what I'm saying? Like, he's, he's active, but they're still playing Travis freaking Ware ahead of him, which is fine. Ware's actually been fine. He's actually been better than I think most people would expect, and maybe he'll get another no, ten day for a white guy. Well, hey man, look, I mean, he's got to overcome he's, a lot, man. He's got to overcome being white. He's got to overcome a relative well, lack helps, of talent. Andy, Andy, it helps that he runs excellent routes and mm-hmm. has great hands. No, I know he brings a lot of intangibles. <laughs> he, he's a born leader. He's got a great work ethic, True. as is my understanding. Um, smarter too than most of the players out there on the court. But either way, like at this point, just tell Dang stay home. Yeah, yeah I mean, just they you don't, might, you don't need to come. You don't need might. to come because I feel like at this point, just putting Dang back and forth on the one ten, like or however he however he commutes no, to Staples, that's kind of messed up, man. That's kind of messed up. What if up. they make him live at Staples? <laughs> like he lives in it, like in the basement. I'm like just saying, like that's that's kind of screwed up. It is. Um, and it's it it. The other reason it, it just it, it kind of sucks is like they had built up real momentum, and you know I talked to Luke Walton and I asked him before Monday's game like how good are you, like relative to the rest of the Western Conference, and you know he was absolutely not willing to put himself up, put the Lakers up with you know the the top eight and these these elite teams, but he made it pretty clear it's like we're good and we're a good team and we are no longer at the very least we're no longer one of the any name the Sacramento Kings or the Phoenix Suns but we're not them yeah. is basically what he was saying and they're not and they're not and it's a, he and he made the point of it's a real short trip back there if we don't keep minding what's made us good but they believe that they're good Channing Fry who is still new enough to the team who was back with uh, back in the locker room on on Monday after the appendectomy um you know he's still he's got enough separation from this group to not really call him a we he still refers to the team accidentally as they. Um, I was like, how good? How good is this team? You've seen a lot of of rebuilding. You've seen a lot of quality. It's like they're good. And he pointed around and he he looked at you know the different guys in the locker room. He's like, you know, twenty, twenty two, twenty, just pointing at different lockers at the age that they are. And he's like, to be as competitive as this group has been over the last twenty five games is meaningful. And what separates the Lakers from the top eight? Those guys have stars. Those guys have, you know, two or three guys per team that are elite or all star or both. And the Lakers don't yeah, have I mean, that. Yeah, the Lakers yet. got a taste of that Monday night against Portland. I mean, Damian Lillard took over exactly. the game in the fourth quarter. He had 19 points in the fourth quarter. He hit three threes, I think minimum three, that were marked at 28 feet out, might have actually been further. And he's the type of guy 
who can re- you can rely on Damian Lillard right. to do that. And they have you know those were, those were like Bill Bellamy rock and jock shots that yeah. he was hitting. And you know, and if on a night where he's not doing it, they have C.J. McCollum, who's not an All Star, but he's close. He's All Star adjacent. He's close to that caliber of player. Um, and so they have they have that kind of talent. Portland very quietly has become a three seed. But if you go down the top eight in the Western Conference, every team has one or two or three guys that are that good. Um, and the Lakers don't yet yet um, yet. It I does. Bode, far, I don't think they're far from having it though. No, but it does bode well for the idea. And this is something, Andy. I know you've talked about that. Let's say they re-sign Randall and add Paul George this summer. And the natural progression of somebody like Ingram and Lonzo, whatever, that's a team certainly that can can compete for a top eight. I said, I know be- what you've said. Right. I've said before. I think even if they don't get Paul George, if they keep this group intact and they add a couple good role players to what they have, I think that team could get an eight seed. If you believe in what they've done over the last like twenty five or so right, games, if you think that's, they've and, played like a playoff. And team. I, I, at the very least, I think that the nine game losing streak. You can look at it now, and you know, you guys, you and Travis used to mock me on the post game show because I would say, you know, guys, if you get rid of the nine game losing streak, is if that's something you're allowed to do? But I, I think at like Dan Tony tried all the time. <laughs> so every day was the beginning of a new season. Mm-hmm. If you take the first twenty whatever games where the Lakers weren't, the record wasn't great, but they were obviously very competitive. And the last 25 games where they've got a, you know, very strong record, you can, at the very least, I think you can argue at this point of the season that the nine game losing streak was the outlier, particularly when you take into account who was missing and that they're somewhere in between 16 and seven, where 16 and eight, whatever they are now, and nine game losing streak. You know, like they're somewhere in there being a competitively decent team. But it also shows you, I think, Andy, too, how tough it is to go from where the Lakers are, to elite. Because right now, Oklahoma City, they have Paul George. They also have Russell Westbrook and Steven Adams and Carmelo Anthony, who is the fourth best player in the team, doesn't suck. And they're... If you're, he's not a terrible fourth best player, but he's not a great fourth best player either. Okay, that's part of the problem. Is right. I mean, and I love. I'm actually. I've always been a bit of a mellow apologist over my career. I mean, over his career, even though I really, really my career as well. Um, I recognize a lot of Mello's shortcomings, and I recognize that he does not fit into the modern NBA at all. But there's always been something about Mello where I've had a soft spot for him. Having said that, I'm not sure he's an ideal fourth best player. Okay. But take him sure. out then. I, Just go with the core three of Paul George, Russell good Westbrook, and Stephen Adams. Pretty good core. Up-and-coming good young player. Yep. That's good. Yeah. And Oklahoma City hasn't, you know, they're eight games, nine games over five hundred on Wednesday. But they haven't lit anybody on fire this year. And so it just goes to show how hard it is to go from where the Lakers are to the top. Yes, it is. It's difficult, man. It is really freaking People, and in particular, I think Laker fans often underestimate just how hard winning in the NBA is. It's really difficult. We have people talking about... Second, you know, like Portland, you know, we, we're sort of praising Portland, Damian Lillard. During the post game show. Right, during the post game show. And, and like, you know, it shows what you need. You need that guy in the fourth quarter. The Lakers, right now, the only one suited to that role is IT, and he's just not capable of it. He's no. just not there yet. Not consistently. Um, and, you know, people were mocking Portland as like, whatever. And Damian Lillard and Damian, by extension. Great. So they get to the second round and they're out like usual. Okay, well, the Lakers have won like 23 games a year for the last five. 
I think at this point people will be satisfied. Right. I mean, with, so, right. Get over like the the notion that all like, if you don't win championships, it's worthless, and that also getting to that part where you can just win championships is easy. Yeah, because we're the Lakers. No, it isn't. No, Anthony so- Davis is scoring six hundred points a game right now. And is vaulted, you know, New Orleans basically single handedly right now into the middle of the Western Conference, uh, playoff ladder. But he's doing it with like superhuman numbers. Like you need, if you have like one dude, and Drew Holiday, by the way, is also, he's been quietly really good. Another all star caliber player. Like if you're not going to have two or three or four of these guys, you need somebody doing what Davis is doing, which is doing stuff that nobody ever does. But it does get to, uh, Brian, the question of just how good the Lakers young players are. And that is something that ESPN right. undertook. Nice as, seg. Thank you. As a <laughs> as a question to ponder. The twenty five best players under twenty five ranking superstars by potential. And you know how we feel about rankings over here, Brian. We love it. What I really want to do, Andy, is if we could just deep dive into each player mm-hmm. and argue their merits yes. one through twenty five, settle in people. Mm-hmm. And I think we should do 15 minutes per number. Oh, I thought you were going to say 15 installments. Because <laughs> that's what I was hoping we'd do. It's a podcast yes. series. Yes, this is going to be our serial. This week, number four. <laughs> um, but okay, so it's, it's Giannis, followed by Anthony Davis, followed by Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, Jokic, Ben Simmons, Porzingis, and so on and so on. First Laker pops up as Brandon Ingram. He is at 17, 16. 16. Lonzo, Close behind, tied for 17. Kuzma makes a list of 22, or 23, tied for 23rd. And um, Randall's sort of in the also-receiving-votes category. Yes. Um, I think you could, I mean, I'd put Randall a little higher. I would see well, what we've what I think we both doing. think Julius Randall's a better player than Kyle Kuzma to begin with. Correct, and I would bump down Kuzma, you know. And I think Randall's better than a couple people on this list. Right, but whatever. Right. The only, What strikes me as interesting is, again, what you need to do to get yourself back to the top of the conference. Giannis is at the top of this list. He is considered one of the best players in the league right now. Yes. Um, and the Bucks aren't going anywhere currently. No. Um, Anthony Davis, again, I right now I think he's the best player on this list. New Orleans has done things people aren't expecting because Davis is doing superhuman bleep right now to make it happen. You know, Embiid with the Sixers, Carl Anthony Towns with the with the Timberwolves. Like you needed Jimmy Butler to get him to that place where they look like they were going to be a three or a four seed. It's so flipping hard. So even somebody like Ingram, if he gets to an all star level with Lonzo, you still probably need something else to sure. go with that group. Sure. I mean, unless the unless you have the patience to just wait out what you think could think could be their development what you think could be but i'm I'm, my point is if the if those guys cap out as all-stars bradley beal style all-stars where they are legit all-stars i understand what you mean i just but not kevin durant right not the elite elite guys you're that's not gonna get you to the western conference finals it's it's not well probably won't if if nothing else it's probably not going to get you there in the era of the warriors i mean you never know it's not going to get you i don't think it's going to get you there in the era of anything because there's always the way things go now there's always going to be teams now with the elite dude plus one or two more guys it it can be except there's only so many of those this is where i think the conversation gets really tricky and sometimes i think gets a little bit overblown 
in that there's there's only so many of those guys to begin with. And as we currently stand, most of them are in their prime anyway. And by the time the Lakers would theoretically develop, some of these guys are going to be facing the back end of their careers. Maybe, but it also I mean, as far as guys we know that are this sure. Good. But it also assumes that in the in the intervening three or four years, two other teams don't. I, I, I get, get that, that magical. I, I understand thing. that. I, I I just think sometimes this conversation can become, and I'm not saying you're doing this. You can say I'm, but doing no, no, it. no. Fine. But I'm saying that I think sometimes the conversation becomes very zero sum game in a way where you can't really think about development or progress because if you're not considered finals caliber, you're nothing or it's not good enough when most of the time you can't force that into happening anyway. I you can't hurry love, Andy. Um, it's I get that, but the, that's the the standard that they're talking about, and that Lakers fans is you know how how close are we to winning a championship? How as an organization? Sure. How close? And you know the notion that they could that they would be that it would be okay to settle into you know a a, a sort of a six seed level for no, I, and know. I would I wouldn't expect them to, but what I'm talking about at least in my mind isn't necessarily settling for that either. I'm just saying there's a right. there's a difference between. A, a team that you think can credibly in a few years become a Western Conference Finals, you know, for, but for that to happen with the guys that they have now, Lonzo and Ingram need to absolutely get into the elite level absolutely. player. Absolutely. And so something 85% of that, which still leaves the Lakers with two all-star players that were really good, isn't enough. You have, they have to get all the way there. Um, and that's again, why this is so hard. Because, you know, most all-star, the guys, the bottom half of all-star rosters in both conferences aren't good enough to build your team around. That's just sort of how it is. Um, all right, so the other thing that struck, struck out to me about this list that I thought was kind of interesting, Andrew Wiggins is 23rd. Yeah. Like, these, they don't always pan out the way. Like we, it, was, it wasn't that long ago where we were criticizing Cleveland for making that deal for Kevin Love because Wiggins was going to be the guy who... Um, made you know, LeBron's kind of made life easier right, and blew up and whatever, and he just hasn't rounded into any kind of complete player. Um, last year, seemed, you know, seemed to be making progress last year, and it's gotten worse. And now he is, you know, Minnesota's going to be paying him 146 million dollars over the next four or five years. Yeah, I mean, some of that is the cost Ooh, of doing business if you're Minnesota. If you're Minnesota, but, but that it, money still counts. You know, I mean, he's. I think sometimes the the focus on what Wiggins doesn't do, which is frankly a lot, almost everything can, can overshadow the fact that he is actually a really good scorer. But they they need him to do more. You know, I mean, not just to justify his contract, but they need him to do more if they're going to develop. And they need him to score more efficiently. Right. They I mean, they need him to develop if they want him to develop into the type of player that can take the Timberwolves consistently. Into that conversation, they they need him to do well, if more. They want him to develop into the. If they, 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 he has to be somebody most of the way to somebody who justifies that much space on the salary cap. Yeah. I mean, that, the, the, it gets to what the Lakers are doing. Like, it, you don't get many swings at the max player thing. Um, you know, the the Clippers got extraordinarily lucky. That they were able to get off the Blake Griffin contract, but most of the time, that's not easy to do. It's not easy, and but, so it but I think be, it's it can do- be done. I, the good thing, though, for the Lakers, though, when you were saying you only get so many swings, is the Lakers can they can afford to look off more pitches than say a, a Minnesota no question, or you know, some point, of these other organizations. Not, the point I'm making is 
once you commit to, to that money, you have to be right. And yeah. you know, you need to make sure that you don't overcommit to right. the but, they, guys, but the Lakers don't fit. The Lakers, though, the good thing for them is they can yeah, afford to no be question. a little bit more choosy before they commit. Because no even even if you think Laker exceptionalism isn't what it used to be, and you and I have never been a big fan of exceptionalism, it's more exceptional to begin with. than Minnesota. Exactly. The thing that Brian, uh, before we move on, that stood out to me the most about this list is, other than the Sixers, there's no team in the league that has more players on it. Mm-hmm. And then if you start including guys who could have been on it, like Randall. Or a guy like Dare Josh I say should right. I would say he should have been too. But or a guy like Josh Hart, who I don't think is worthy of being on this list, may not ever be worthy of being on a list like this, but is a good NBA player. He looks like he could be a legit two way player in the league, if not a star. There's no team in the league, period, with as many candidates as the Lakers. Yeah, period. And that, that shows that. Like even if you count like Markel Fultz for a Philly, and you're willing to get a benefit of the doubt. Lakers right. still have more players, no question. And it just it shows the Lakers haven't missed, and it is important not to miss. Yes, it is. Um, they have drafted guys who will all have long, legitimate careers in the NBA, and then if they're not quite good enough, you go out and you supplement with the All Stars. But missing on your eleven, you know, the eleventh pick, the seventh pick, the second pick, or whatever cripples your team yes it it's does much i mean we spend so much time on upside that we forget floor mm-hmm. and floor is incredibly important and all of the lakers have high floors they're all good players and that makes it possible for them to build the way that they have um let's move on to the kobe thing uh he won an oscar on sunday best animated short which was sort of surprising i think to people but not really when you think about it it, it was I remember you and I, the first time we talked about Kobe getting this nomination, um, we thought that he wasn't going to win. And then once I heard, though, and this was pretty recent, they opened the voting for animated beyond just animators who actually know what they're talking about to basically everybody. To the, the Academy. Right. And, an Academy vote. Right. And once I heard that everybody gets to vote, I was, it's like, okay, no, Kobe's going to win. Kobe's going to win. Kobe's um, going to win. You know, he's an L.A. guy. This is ultimately an L.A. award. There's going to be a lot of people voting who are big right, fans and, of and him. It's, and it's animated short. And I, don't mean, and I don't mean that in a way to disparage Kobe's Oscar. He won an Oscar. But it's, it's not one of those things where everybody has seen – Everything. Mm-hmm. There's a very good chance that a lot of the people voting didn't see all of them or may have just seen Kobe's. There's a good chance they didn't see two. any of them. Well, no, I think people saw Kobe's and they saw the, the playground movie that came before the Pixar. Okay. You know, but they're probably more like, I guarantee you more people saw Kobe's than any of them because it's on YouTube and it's at Laker games and it's all over the place. Um, so that was, it was a, that part of it is an, a kind of an amazing story. The other side of it though is, that Kobe winning has raised a lot of discussion, um, particularly in, you know, given the dominant themes of the Oscars this year and the Me Too movement, all that. Time's up. Time's up of the rape accusation levied against him in Colorado in 2003. Correct? Yes. Um, and it, it has more after him winning than before. Well, I mean, I look, I said on two previous podcasts and on, on air, thing? this, this was inevitable. Like it was inevitable. Even if he before, if he went, no, no, won. I thought. I mean, it was inevitable. I thought even before he, before I even thought he'd actually win. I thought this reaction would eventually come out. I thought there would be think pieces about how Hollywood generally fawning over Kobe, even if he didn't win. 
people would say this just shows that Hollywood is totally hypocritical about Me Too and Time's right. Up and all these different causes they take. That on. he won though only I think intensified you know the, the, discussion. the discussion of it and 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 the light that it was shine on it. No question. Um, there so was that, a, there right. had been a bunch of different think pieces and, and there was actually a petition uh, that was sent to the Academy. Um, the report I'm reading it had over sixteen thousand signatures um, calling for him to uh it had there were 16,000 signatures calling for him to be removed from the list of nominees and there's since then been um a call for him to lose the Oscar altogether. Right. So my question is what do you do with stuff like this because 2003 isn't that long ago. It's 15 years. Um but in the context of news cycle years, it's a lifetime. And when particularly when you consider how news has accelerated in a, in a, in the post social media world, and Kobe, to his credit, in many respects, has done a lot of work in positive things to to sort of change and rehab his image over the years. And to some degree, people stopped. I think sort of stopped talking about it because nobody quite knew what to do with it. If you go back though, and you start looking at the details. There's a lot of disturbing stuff that came out of it from, you know, some of the, the, the police reporting and, you know, even just the, the, the apology that Kobe delivered through his attorneys um, at the end of the criminal trial uh, before, I believe it was before the civil trial, where he said, I want to apologize directly to the young woman uh, involved in this incident. I want to apologize to her for my behavior that night and for the consequences she has suffered in the past year. Um Although this year has been incredibly difficult for me personally, I can only imagine the pains that she's had to endure. Although, and this is the the real nut of it, um, although I truly believe that this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize that she did not and does not view this incident in the same way I did. After months of reviewing discovery, listening to her attorney, and even her testimony, and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. He's not admitting that he raped her. He's not saying that he raped her, but he's he admit he says I, I understand get, her perspective. I get why she says that. I don't know what to do with this in respect like do you disqualify somebody from the rest of their life for something that very well may have happened, but there's no evidence of of a crime? For something that may have been, um, well, there may be in some people's mind evidence of a crime, then, but there's been no conviction. There's no conviction. There's no. It, it never even went to trial, and it didn't go to trial in part because she wouldn't testify. In part because of a lot of stuff that happened back then in terms of things leaking, and but maybe she didn't want to testify because ultimately she felt like her story would. I don't know, but there's a and there's a huge space between. Kobe going to a hotel room in Colorado and raping a woman and what he's admitting to, which is, wow, I thought this was consensual. She didn't. And I can see why she didn't. And then even more to, you know, a so maybe sort of the controversy like around Aziz and sorry or something that happened, you know, a few weeks back. But I still don't know what to do with Kobe and this incident and how I should look at everything else he does in the rest of his life. Yeah, it's I don't a, know if there's a good answer. I, I, in short, I don't know the answer to this either. I mean, I, I don't know how you're supposed to go about dealing with this. You know, whether you're talking about 
regarding Kobe in general, regarding anybody with this type of accusation to their name or this type of history, or specifically like, you know, because this is, this is a conversation that is a Hollywood conversation in a lot of ways because it's been sparked by, you know, the Oscar and, and, you know, Gary Oldman had, you know, had a similar, I think not quite as strong a reaction be, uh, when he won for the darkest hour best actor. Um, and in 2001, that was, was, oh, okay. it was 2001. He had an accusation of domestic violence, um, by his now ex-wife. Um, and for what it's worth, um, cause Gary, uh, Gary Oldman's son, who's, you know, a son with that particular ex-wife, um, has defended Gary Oldman and said that the incident never happened. You know, she claimed that this happened in front of her and ch- their children. And he basically said in so many words, this did not happen. And my mother is not well. Um, and, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. No, of that. I'm just bringing up the different things that have come sure, up from but, this. But you know what? It's not even, but it's, it, it's increasingly, it's a sports issue. I mean, look at the, you know, today there are, there's a, a an accusation surfacing against Mark Cuban. Um, sexual assault, sexual assault, and it, from 2011, that was published by the Willamette Week, which is an alternative daily or alternative weekly, I should say, in Portland. And there's a police report and all that. And basically, what Cuban is accused of, and this is you know one night at a bar in 2011, right. putting his hand on a woman's pants and penetrating her. Yes, um, he says it didn't happen. Um, no charges were ever filed, and you know, but the woman is standing by her account. You're like these kinds of stories are going to become far more common in sports. We saw it with Jerry Richardson. We've seen it with, um, you know, the 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 culture of the Dallas Mavericks, Um, and it's particularly, I think, difficult when you like when they're isolated. Well, I mean, specifically when it comes to Kobe and this situation with with the Oscars and you know the accusations of you know hypocrisy by Hollywood and by the Academy Voting Committee and you know what's what is really the purpose of the Me Too movement and Time's Up if somebody like Kobe is going to end up winning an Oscar? And the question that I think is interesting, because I mean, the truth is, I don't, I don't know an answer of how you're supposed to handle all of this. But I think it raises the question of if you're going to start assigning behavioral standards for eligibility to be honored by something like the Academy, how far does this go? Because for example, like, with DUI, basically what separates DUI fatality from a DUI arrest with uh, no injuries from getting home having driven drunk? Luck. Luck. Pure luck. But it's still a bad thing to do, and it's something where you are consciously putting other people's lives at risks. Mm-hmm. You know, a bar fight, like male-on-male assault, you know, violent behavior that doesn't happen to be put upon a woman, you know... A, Wesley Snipes with tax evasion. Sure. But you know, I mean, like, but, yeah. but what I'm, what I'm saying though is it starts getting into a weird area that I'm not sure, and I don't ask this to be flippant, but do you need to do a background check or like a Google before you start nominating people? Well, I mean, look, because you, I, you start, yeah, I creating, get what you're, I'm, I'm, I'm you're, I mean, and I understand what you're saying. You're not normally a slippery slope kind of guy. No, no, no. I'm not, but, I'm not being slippery slope at all in terms of danger. What I'm, what I'm saying is, if if you start looking to put, and I'm talking specifically about like Me Too and Times Up, and you know, which has been, in a lot of ways, a you know again an entertainment. It's being treated like an entertainment industry issue, even though really it's it is. Not. A, I mean, I, I don't say know. pick your blank, right? Industry. And I, I think it's 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 I think 
starting in the entertainment industry and is being fueled by the entertainment industry was at this point moved far beyond that. I mean, you know, the difference really between James Franco and Gary Oldman getting nominations is James Franco, his accusations of, you know, sexual impropriety is more top of mind than Gary Oldman having a domestic violence accusation. But it's also it's it's post social media. It's I mean, sure. It's also the difference between. Six months but, ago, and exactly, but but the point being though, years. but the point being though, we often end up going back and looking at these sort of retroactive transgressions and treating them at times with the same importance retroactively because somebody got nominated. Well, you, tr- but you, but like you know, but look at Woody Allen. I mean, I I think to to your to your point about what about DUI, what about all those other things? How what is where is the line where you? I mean, I. I think it's one of those things where it's, you know, the, the, like almost like the famous line about pornography. It's just like you, we draw lines. You recognize we, it when we, you see it. And we draw lines. We do. And, and, I'm not, and I want to make it clear. I'm not saying any of this in Kobe's defense or anything like, you know, no, but to, I, my point is it's, I'm saying it just, it, you start getting into, I think particularly when, when there can be a focus on looking into past behavior involving famous people, there is a point to doing it. And often these offenses are serious and they require consideration and you don't want to have a world where famous, powerful people can get away with whatever they want because that just perpetuates cycles. But for something, for a situation that's as complicated and layered as sexual harassment, sexual assault, you know, that takes place in different industries. And again, talking with Hollywood, I think sometimes the focus on celebrity behavior, particularly past celebrity behavior, and looking to find instances of bad celebrity behavior can turn can turn the focus into who's next as opposed to what's next. Okay. And what's next is often the granular conversations about what needs to happen when you talk about unions dealing with studios and creating better workplace environments. And these are often less clickbaity, in some ways less sensationalized stories, but I think that they ultimately matter more. And my concern at my concern at times is that the the hysteria that can come around somebody like Kobe winning an Oscar, as much as I understand the hysteria, and I don't even think it's unwarranted. I, even, I wouldn't even call this hysteria. I, mean, I, I, I honestly, I mean, I I'm not trying to be parse your word. I don't I don't consider this. It's a legitimate. Question. Then, not, then pick a better. Okay, then pick a better word than hysteria. The 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 backlash, the outrage, whatever whatever word that you want to use, it's very immediate, and I think it's typical to the way we as a culture now react to everything, as opposed to I think some. But they're, but you know, but they're related because you can't the who's the what's next question is in part related to. I don't think we spend enough time on that, what's next. That's fine. And but, I think but, we often don't spend enough that, time but, on what's but next. But that, f- that still doesn't answer the I don't know. Question. The, I already right. said I don't I know, know the but answer. But it still doesn't answer the, the question of how you deal with those kinds of things. And I think, you know, to DUI, yeah, I don't think that would be disqualifying. And I would think most people would agree. Um, you know, I think people I think will, it's arbitrary though in a lot of Of course ways. it's arbitrary. Most things that we do are arbitrary. We decide what's a crime and what's not based in part on what is arbitrary. We draw lines that are essentially arbitrary all over the place. Um, but you know, and I think there there will be I guess people should I guess people should think about it as more complicated than they often do. That's probably That's true. what I would say. Is but, that I think people are often very reductive in the way that they look at these conversations, however serious they are, and I happen to think they are serious. 
but they often look at it in a very reductive way in terms of just what's right in front of them, and they don't actually really think about the implications of what they're saying. That's oh, all. Okay, but I think you can, I think you can you can do more things at once. And well, we don't do it very the, well. Okay, fine. But the 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 question of Kobe and people who are in similar situations who have a very serious, um, but sort of you know I guess you could say isolated accusation. I mean, to as the best far of my as knowledge. the best of my knowledge. Um, you, you know, he's, it's not like Kobe's going to go away from entertainment. It's not like he's going to go away from the public eye. It's not like, you know, Mark Cuban is going to have to answer for this of, well, what should, should he be allowed to own a team? You know, we are trying to figure out where the lines are for what is the kind of behavior where you essentially get a, a do over or a get out of jail free or a, uh, that's the wrong way to put it, but a chance, a chance at redemption. And what is disqualifying? And when you talk about sort of a, a morals test or something before being able to be nominated for something like an Oscar, I understand the hesitation of, well, where do you draw the line? Why is a DUI okay, but a, you know, a, a sexual assault allegation isn't necessarily? Cause you said it essentially disqualified James Franco from a nomination. Yes. Um, and sexual misconduct, just right. so it's clear. The, the the i'm i'm not so troubled by that because i think you know the academy is an organization that's allowed to kind of create its own standards and there's no rule that says you know you are entitled as a filmmaker to be able to be nominated for an oscar and people can no i'm not look i'm not i'm not evolve. worried i'm not worried about a world where kobe can't ever get nominated but for another oscar but it's not just going to be but it's not just going to be kobe it's, or whoever we're gonna not, be that's judging our we're going to be making our sort of evaluations on the best art, the best you know, right. things like that, based on things that are ancillary to the quality of that art. Kobe's rape accusation has nothing to do with the quality of deer basketball. Right. Um, Woody Allen's accusations have nothing to do with the quality of Annie Hall. Although, they, psychologically... I was going to say, bad example, bad example, but I understand, but you understand what, what I'm getting yes. at. Um, there may be a little too much art imitating life in the, in the case of Woody Allen, but in James Franco's case, maybe, or Gary Oldman or whoever you want to go to, there's probably less. I, it's more a question for me of how much acceptance should somebody who has not been convicted. And I think, you know, we've, we've kind of created a standard where like Mel Gibson, for sort of, I guess, what you would consider to be more like race, race and... Well, it's a little so more than that with Mel Gibson. It is. I mean, but, he actually had to go to court um, over accusations. No, uh, I, understand, I understand. But a lot of the baggage with Mel Gibson is related to, you know, sugar bleeps and stuff he said about Jews and... Black uh, people. Black people and all kinds of stuff. And... Give me back my son! <laughs> and that. And that. And we, I think we've sort of decided that you can come back from that. Um, with enough time, and with I enough guess time theoretical, and, you know, you know, he had a theoretical redemptive behavior problem. Yes, um, and a lot of baggage. What is the what is the way we're supposed? Like, you know, Harvey Weinstein is not coming back. No, and doesn't deserve. No, Harvey Weinstein might be in prison. It should be, I think. It's and and I think the 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 lessons that. Me Too and Time's Up have really demonstrated for men is that conviction in a court of law 
isn't necessarily the standard that we should use for things that aren't related to your literal freedom. Um, and there are, you know, the Aziz Ansari controversy. There are ways that men need to rethink how we approach, sure. how we look at There's no question. Know, sex, how we look at things, how we look at consent, and all these other things that are difficult and, and whatever. So th- all of that stops short of being convicted. That doesn't seem like it's the right standard anymore. And for somebody like Kobe and the Academy and winning... I don't know where I ju- it's such a difficult I, issue. I don't I think know being but... able to have at the at the least being able to have and I haven't heard him say anything. Has he no. said anything? No, he wasn't asked about it after to the best right. of my knowledge, he was not he asked, asked after right. as I it's, didn't it's think he'd more, be. It's more come I would have been shocked if he was over asked. the course of the week. I, I I wonder if at the very least people have to put themselves out and say, like, I get why this is I, I didn't I didn't I one hundred percent in Kobe's case would say I one hundred percent deny raping you know this woman and he put out the apology but you can get into I, I they almost have to become advocates on me like Kobe did on a much different thing but with uh, the Benny Adams thing where he recognized the error um, because it's part of a shifting perception with things that were tolerated in 2003 or 2000 or in 1988 or whatever simply aren't now and shouldn't have been then and shouldn't be now but you still have to look at all you know again it's complicated that's that's why ultimately brian i brought up the stuff i did earlier is because it's not because i it's not because I have an issue with people being upset over Kobe winning no, his Oscar. It's, it's I, legitimate. It's totally legitimate. I understand why people would be upset about it. I understand why people would think it's inappropriate. Again, given the context yes, of, of the I, I, era. I have no issue with that at all. I just think that it's a very complex question that people don't always, I think, really really stare down the complexities. And it, it comes to who do you believe? Like, do you believe the woman? Do you believe him? And you But know. again, also, there's just the complexity of the question of where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do? Yeah, but in some way, I mean, I understand why you're talking about that because I think that is the more, the more important question is how do we change rather than how do we punish the people who... Yeah, and, 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 and again, I, it's I, not about me... No, it's not about I, me caring about people getting punished. That's not the point. But the question it's a it's a matter of energy focus. But the question of And I think what sometimes the focus needs how, redirecting. How do we treat people who have these moments in their record is to some degree related to the question of what we do going forward. Sure, but it but it also though, in some ways, it comes down to how do we treat them how do we treat them with these past discretions again because they were already treated in the moment. Like the only you know, in some ways this is coming up for Kobe specifically because of the nomination as you said before it hasn't been dealt with in a while right so, you know because it's because there's just nothing to add to it really. right but but you see what i'm saying like in in i again even while understanding the outrage over it and understanding why people would be angry about it it's the same conversation as before and to me in some ways as it, before when 2000 no it's a much different conversation than before because the context has changed the context, the context of how we look the at context has changed but but radically I the, but i don't think the examination of kobe has changed no but if if the same evidence against kobe the same details against kobe the same and you know again go back you read I, when I went back this morning i was like oh i forgot about that i forgot about that i forgot about that 
if that if Colorado happened in 2013 instead of 2003, even at the beginning of of you know, sort of the the golden age of social media, totally different ballgame. Could be, and I the guess. way the way the conversation is different, the way we remember, the details we remember are different. Um, the amount of time that it would have spent in the public consciousness, despite the fact that it was a 24-7 story then, would have been 24-7 magnified even more. And in the, if it happened today in the context of, of, of Me Too and post-Harvey Weinstein and all that stuff, it would be another degree of being treated differently. Um, we just don't look at this stuff the same way anymore. And I, I don't, I don't think it's a rehash of the same conversation i think it's a it's a newer version of it with an older story that people don't remember as well because the details aren't as fresh okay that that's fair enough i just don't i don't know if people really know what they want to do with it and again it just it sort of raises the larger question of just what do what do you do with all of this there's in, just in a general it, moving forward it ultimately comes down to we are going to as a society slowly and imperfectly develop collective standards that separate free literal freedom criminal freedom go to jail don't go to jail from okay but do you get to keep doing what you're doing like you know you're accused of x y and z you don't go to jail over it but that doesn't mean you get to keep making movies you know that kind of guess but i mean i think we will start i think we will start to take people in these situations and collectively like is what is happening essentially to Woody Allen right now. Deny them their opportunity to do what they do in in the public eye. And sometimes it will be unfair. Other times it will probably be deserved. Sometimes people will come back. Sometimes they won't. But I think eventually that's kind of what's going to happen. Because well, the thing that we've learned, I think most of all, is it, something doesn't need to rise to the level of criminality. For it to be dealt with, um, you know, particularly for people of privilege, to be dealt with um, in in more harsh ways than perhaps they were twenty years. I ago. mean, look, if if that can influence behavior, that that fear of ending up in that space, right. that's a good thing. Particularly for 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 sexual assault and domestic sure. violence and things, which are very difficult to prove overwhelmingly beyond yes. a reasonable doubt. In a yes, they are. That's one That's one among many reasons that often victims don't come forward. Um, all right. So that's that's the Kobe thing. I'm pretty sure we solved that problem. Oh, yeah. Um, Kevin Love wrote an interesting piece on the Players' Tribune this week that details panic attacks that he had with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He opens up about mental illness um, and notes that, that these panic – this has been since reported that one of the games that he actually had a panic attack was that January game against Oklahoma City – where he left, like, and nobody quite understood, like, wait, Kevin says he's sick. Um, and since has opened up to the team and that, you know, in that infamous, now infamous team meeting where everybody laid into him and then he apparently this is when he told people about it and helps explain the sort of the solidarity behind Kevin Love coming out of that. His story in the Players Tribune about, um, anxiety and panic attacks comes about a week after uh, DeMar DeRozan opened up about his bouts with depression. And this is, well, you know, three years or whatever after Ron Artest or Meta World Peace won that, you know, the, the citizenship award from the NBA about his work opening up about mental illness and, and destigmatizing and all that kind of stuff. And this is, this is becoming a very common thing where 
prominent men in very masculine roles, professional athlete. It's the, you know these are people who are getting out in front of destigmatizing um, mental illness and being in destigmatizing vulnerability in ways that I think are going to be incredibly significant. I really hope so. I mean, to to see an athlete in a hyper masculine world, particularly I mean when you're talking about. Kevin Love, and this comes on the heels of DeMar DeRozan admitting that he has been dealing with depression. But in the case of Kevin Love, you're talking about an athlete who is always the target of derision. He is always the scapegoat whenever anything goes wrong in Cleveland. He actually had been a scapegoat often in whenever, whenever things went wrong with the Timberwolves. Mm-hmm. You know, he is a racial minority inside his own sport, inside his own locker room, and there's been, been times where people have wondered whether or not just sort of cultural dynamics and cultural differences, you know, nothing having to do with racism or, you know, true, you know, animosity or anything like that, but just it, it makes it more difficult at times for people to relate to him. He's always the people meaning his teammates or teammates. Yes. Okay. That's come up as a discussion before, you know, Kevin Love is always the guy that's on the trading block. He comes from he comes you know, a very comfortable background. Right, exactly. He's not considered as athletic. Well, He's not considered right. as tough, whatever. To have Kevin Love put himself out there like that, I think it could make a difference inside sports. But like you said, Brian, it hopefully can make a difference outside. But it's, it, there's, it is not surprising to me that basketball generally is at the more at the forefront of these types of things that chip away at what we consider, you know, typical guy behavior. The way that men are supposed to do stuff and be tough and be stoic, more so than football, more so than baseball, which have not just concern. I mean, baseball, I think, is made up because it, you know, the demographics of baseball and where players come from and, you know, more Midwestern guys, more white guys, more blah, 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 more traditional and all that. It's a it's a more conservative sport, not like little c conservative, um, as opposed to politically conservative, which it is as well. Football, same kind of thing. It's it is a sport that takes the and puts the emphasis on the collective much more than the individual. You are supposed to take your own self and throw it all in with the pool. You're not supposed to stick out. You know, everybody, 54 guys all go in the same direction. It is small C conservative more than basketball is. And so these basketball players, I think, understand and have the flexibility and the ability to be open and honest about stuff and be more modern and be more uh, progressive in how they think of themselves. I mean, even something like Kevin Durant's decision to go join the Warriors, which a lot of old school sports thinking would look at and say, yeah, what a P move, you know, he's copping out. He's taking the easy way out. He's not suffering through his career. Like you're supposed to like Michael Jordan would have, um, because what KD valued was a certain type of playing and personal happiness in a way that wasn't talked about, like, and wasn't tolerated. Like you were supposed to suffer for your achievement in sports because, again, it goes back to that's how men do it. That's the tough way to do it. I, I think it helps, too. I mean, I just thought about this. But as far as, like, Kevin Love, for example, feeling comfortable putting himself out there like this or, or DeMar DeRozan, and not just comfortable 
with, you know, the general public's reaction and fans' reaction, but among your own peers, I think it may help that this is a generation that all played AAU. And a lot of these guys know, I mean, they've known each other since they were kids. So it's not just seeing your teammate, you know, express issues, you know, and express really vulnerable problems that they've had. These are like people you've known for a long time. Like there's some guys who are going to, yeah, they're going to hear about sure, this. That helps. And, and, you know, they've known Kevin Love since he was a kid. Like they've known DeMar since he but was the, a kid. But I also think the, it, and I think that that it, lends some empathy to the situation. I think it lends empathy and I think it makes it easier for guys to, to be open. I don't think it's an accident that Jason Collins, again, first, you know, got to, to be active while playing and gay. Because I think you understand the empathy from what you're talking about, guys know him. There's a tolerance. And there's also the understanding that the people watching are going to be more tolerant. It is a younger, more liberal demographic. Um, you know, even the Republicans who watch basketball because they're younger are tend to be more liberal than and it's just it's it's a more it's the demographics of basketball make it so the audience watching the league is going to be more tolerant of somebody like Kevin Love opening up to vulnerability, DeMar DeRozan being vulnerable. And that means the league is going to be more supportive and, and all of these other things and create conditions in which people are going to feel more uh, positive about it. I, particularly, I think, with the NFL and brain injury, it's vital that the NFL – I'm not saying they're not they, – they have no interest in this. That's not what I mean. But, like, the NFL needs to have – and an emphasis on mental health and really make sure and hopefully they do but really make sure the players are getting the help they need and feel like they can open up publicly privately whatever they need to do because that's a sport where literally these guys get their brains mushed and i'm not a doctor but i got to feel like mental illness is a bigger issue in that community than any other sport because of all the different variables that come into play yeah and i mean you know we we there's a lot of talk these days about mental illness, you know, being an issue in America, you know, specifically it gets linked back to gun violence and mass shootings. And there, there are some people who will dispute about there being a link, you know, when it comes to these shooters involved and people, you know, committing these atrocities. But if you do believe that, you know, if you do buy into that link or at least believe that they're tangentially linked, you know, what you're really talking about with this, with this type of mental mental illness, this is a male issue. Like this is a male issue of mental illness. When you start talking about mental illness that specifically leads to violence, like that is a male issue. And I think, you know, there's generally speaking have been historically more of a reluctance for just men in general to even just seek help. You know, like, you know, when yeah. you talk I mean, about that, going to that's a, obviously the, that's the, the most extreme. Right. It's the most, it's the, the, the most you know, extreme. The, the more, the much more mundane and, and, and frankly relevant is second are just the daily depression. This is what, and this is really, and to his, to his credit, what Kevin Love is really talking right, about. Or DeMar, I mean, or DeRozan or but like he, I just, I literally just read the Kevin Love thing, um, you know, yesterday is that notion of destigmatizing the, the need to ask for help. Yeah. Like, I mean, recognizing your own anxiety you know, or whatever. Traditionally, like, you know, traditionally therapists were something that either women went and saw, you know, they went, they went and did, did their time on the couch talking to the therapist, or it was something that, you know, crazy men went to, or, you know, neurotic men, you know, like Woody Allen famously, you know, every movie of his has a reference to seeing his analyst, mm -hmm. whatever. Like this isn't something that, 
you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, normal no, manly men, men did. suck it up. Right. And it's important that men really understand, no, don't. Like, I mean, as sure. somebody who's been in therapy before, I can say it's really beneficial. Like, I'm glad that I've done it. Like, I, I feel like if you've ever debated whether or not you should go, you then the, you know go. the answer. Yeah. And you should go. It's helpful. I think it'd be helpful for anybody, even if you think you don't need to go. Um, yeah. So kudos to Kevin Love. Kudos to DeMar DeRozan. And kudos to Meta World Peace for being at the forefront of this. Yes. And, and starting this process of really changing the conversation. Um, last thing. Big Lebowski turns 20 is yes. today or just this week? Uh, I think it's, yesterday. I know it's this it week. Yesterday. yesterday. Okay. Um, so this is a fascinating movie. Yes, it is. Big Lebowski was released, obviously, 20 years ago this week. In 1998. As the Coen brothers, it was the follow-up to Fargo. Right. Which which is arguably, you know, some people would say their best movie. Yeah, I I would say it's their best movie. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director. uh, Some McDormand. I believe it won Screenplay. Right. But it it is a titan in terms of, of filmmaking. The Big Lebowski isn't Fargo. No. It's not as good of a movie as Fargo. No. It it was not well as well received as Fargo. No. The it, critics were disappointed in it, yeah, particularly I, as a Fargo follow-up. I, it, particularly as a Fargo follow-up. It only made um about seventeen and a half million domestically. Like you know, it's not you know, any even by you know, Cohen brothers are not Michael Bay, but even by their it standards. Was not successful. No, it was not successful. You know, I, I there was a there was a general air of people being underwhelmed. Or disappointed. Right. Since then, though, The Big Lebowski has become arguably the biggest cult movie of kind of our generation-ish, like sort of this age group. You know, it is it is a movie that among, as particularly kind of movie geeks, is as beloved and quoted. Well, I would say in some ways. Cult, you just sort of I, I was going to say even among, I, that's that's what I was going to say. It, not even among movie geeks. I would say. Like this regular is, folk. Right. I mean, and, and in a non-ironic way, not like a, like a movie like The Room, which became a cult hit because everyone just wanted to revel in how terrible it is. No. Like there's been, a, you know, beyond an appreciation for Big Lebowski, you know, there like when it first came out, like, do you remember what your initial reaction was to it? I didn't see it in the theater, I don't think. Okay, because I did. And I thought there were parts that were... I was too busy partying during my senior year of college. There were were parts that I thought were absolutely, like, laugh-out-loud hysterical. I thought, uh, you know, like, Jeff Bridges and Goodman and Buscemi were great together. Late Philip Seymour Hoffman, Totoro stole scenes. Like, there's a lot of great classic comedy in pockets, but there were parts where it flagged and, you know, just... It's this shaggy shaggy dog story that's funny, but it didn't really add up to much. And on the heels of something like Fargo, that the screenplay is so damn tight and perfect. Oh, there's nothing and there's, tight about Big Lebowski. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, like, there's really a lot of layers to it and a lot of significance. I remember feeling like I enjoyed it, but it's it's one of these things. It, the Big Lebowski is, a, is as self-indulgent a movie as you'll ever see. I mean, it's clearly just stuff the Coen brothers found entertaining, kind of built characters around... You know, composites of people and real people that they had met. Yeah, I mean, it's their version of a Raymond Chandler. Right. It's just, novel. it's just all this stuff going on and things that they clearly find very Right. That doesn't add up to a whole lot. But since then has become this thing. Like there, there are so many 
lines, so many characters. I mean, just, you know, you calling someone the dude and, you know, uh, just the, the, the white Russian thing, all this stuff that comes out of the movie. And it's a, it's a little bit like, Anchorman is for me at least. I mean, this is a much better movie than Anchorman, but Anchorman is a funnier movie to quote in a lot of ways, and it is actually a good movie to watch. And Lebowski is a great movie for movie clips on YouTube. Like, you can just cycle through all any individual clip of that movie. Pick any random three minutes, it's probably going to be very entertaining and contain two or three lines that will make you laugh out loud. Sitting down and watching the entire thing, though, is a totally different experience because as a movie, like you say, it's it's flawed. Well, I mean, I, I, I ultimately came, you know, and it didn't take me 20 years. It took just like a couple of years because I saw it again a couple more times. And, and ultimately what I came to just real, realize and appreciate about it is like as a story, it doesn't add up to much. But just as a pure comedy, it is effing hilarious. And if you just accept every, it, every line is funny. if you just accept it as something that is absolutely hilarious and nothing more, then it's awesome. Right. I mean, but it, and it's funny. I'm reading a, a quote from a Joel, Joel Cohen in 2009 because you know this movie has gone on to inspire film festivals, just Lebowski film festivals, books like ways of life, like dudism is considered a philosophy. Joel Cohen said in 2009, that movie has more of an enduring fascination for other people than it does for us. <laughs> it's probably true. But I mean, I mean, if you had said in 1998 that this would become perhaps the most universally beloved Cohen Brothers movie, the one with the most culty influence, like people were like, you're, you're out of your mind. makes like top five lists, like the best Cohen Brothers movies of all. And as a movie, it's not. As a, you know, as an achievement in filmmaking, when you look at all the stuff that they've done. But damn, I mean, I'd put it in there for sure. There are two breeds, I just read about this, of African spiders, two species of African <laughs> spiders named for the Big Lebowski. There's the, and I will mispronounce this, but, uh, Anilosimus Big Lebowski and Anilosimus Dude, uh, both created in 2016. Um, By somebody who discovers. This, this is from Wikipedia. Um, additionally, um, an extinct, Per- Permian conifer genus is named after the film in honor of its created, uh, creators. The first species described within this genus in 2007 is based on the 270 million year old plant fossils from Texas and is called a Lebowskia grandfolia. <laughs> I, I've, I've been trying to figure out why certain movies become cult movies. And like, this is something that we should probably have somebody on to explain it. But you know, Austin Powers kind of became that. And you know, uh, uh, office space became this obviously did and i wonder if like the common theme is because they're sort of flawed movies i mean office space is not a perfect movie if you sit and watch it beginning to end but it has all these moments in between and i wonder if it's a it's a function as much of anything as like the dvd age where yes, you can just like you can put lebowski in and you don't have to sit through the parts that you don't think are as good you can just skip to the stuff that you think is really funny. Well, I don't, I don't know specifically how the DVD age affected Lebowski, but I know that for Office Space and Austin Powers, the two movies Those that movies, you mentioned, they blew up. They blew, they blew up became, after their right, run. Correct. They, they, they became I, massively popular. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is, I, 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 that part's a given is explain how that kind of phenomenon happens. And I think it's in part because sometimes people just miss movies when they're in the theater. You know, Office Space is not exactly like that was a, massive release and all that kind of stuff. Well, no, it was a massive release. It just didn't do any business. Well, it was, in fact, I'm, a massive okay, release. Then I'm, gone. I'm wrong about that. So either people just don't see it, it gets bad reviews, 
you know, you look at it and the critics didn't like it, so I don't go see it. Whatever. Well, I, think, it might I be. think word of mouth often ends up being created by either omnipresence in DVD or, you know, it ends up for whatever reason, like on a run on TBS or TNT, like, sure. you know, like television can often, I think, create a new life but and a they, new world but those for some are all of these movies. movies. Those are and all they have movies to, that they have to have people who really loved it. Right. Like you have to have people in the beginning who will cape up for a movie. Like people who would, I remember this happening with Office Space because I saw Office Space in the theater and I thought it was hilarious. And I remember telling people, this movie is hilarious. Like Wet Hot American Summer, which is maybe the biggest example of this in recent memory. 17 people saw that, that in the movie. That movie tanked hard in the theaters. But the people who loved it loved it. I mean, loved it and would not stop talking about it. And eventually just led to more people seeing it, more people seeing it. Yeah, I mean, but the, the, even that movie, I mean, has, I think they all have in common this notion of like, nobody talks about, you, you quote things, you name quotes, you talk about characters, you make characters into types that you assign to people in your life and all that kind of stuff. And the, the pop culture references become about that rather than, you know, the movie. You know, people don't talk about Lebowski in the same way they do, you know, Fargo or Blood Simple or, you know, No Country for Old Men. I, I think some of it may be also too. Um, it's just it's a phenomenon that I think is fascinating. Yeah, and I wonder why there are other equally you know there are other funny movies that you know were funny when they were made, funny when they were released, and don't become cult classics in a in a DVD release. Well, I mean, it to, to, to some degree, though, I mean, those comedies that you're that you're talking about, they they never that en- never ends up happening because they were accepted at the time. Like they got their due in the some, moment. But some some some, some movies just are missed. Well, like, I think wow, that was a funny movie. Nobody ever saw it. Nobody I watched it. I wonder if with Lebowski, some of this has to do with you know, even even though the movie was considered a disappointment at the time, both critically and financially. The one thing everybody agreed on was that Bridges was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, Jeff Bridges is absolutely hilarious. He is perfect in this role. And I think in a lot of ways, that role changed how we see Jeff Bridges. Oh, completely. Like, you know, it's... It seems like every role he's played since then has been some well, particu- sort of long hair. Well, but particularly every interview. Like, every time you see an interview with Jeff Bridges, it seems like he's, like, channeling the dude. And, you know, he's always been, like, this laid-back... You know, California stonery type person. I mean, that's always been who Jeff Bridges is, but I think he never had a role that I think made people love Jeff Bridges. I mean, he's always been respected. He's always been considered one of the right. greatest actors of his generation. He's one of my like top three, but top not two. beloved. In right. That way. This is the first time he had a role where he was beloved and it's just everything about. It. I mean, wrap it up here, but I mean everything about. It. I mean, even like throwaway stuff like when. When Julianne Moore is asking Jeff Bridges, like, you know, do you, do you, you know, about the whole thing, do you enjoy sex? And yes. like, and people, you know, people think I don't like it, but we can be, I think she refers to it as a zesty endeavor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's also a great LA movie. It is. You're right. It, it, it travels all over LA. You know, I mean, like there's scenes in Ralph's, which is a very yeah. LA thing, you know, the old Hollywood he used, stars he lane. He uses his Ralph's ideas I, as Ralph's club card as yes, an ID. Yes. And I, and I, I love, movies you know as somebody who's lived in la a long time i love movies where la is a character and there's you know there's a great tradition of that i also found some very cool imdb facts really quickly about lebowski both of the animal this from imdb and and everything on imdb is always right both of the animals in the film are incorrectly named the nihilist marmot was actually a a ferret ferret. and isn't that that's the joke it's it's not a marmot right but just for people 
but people should know that. They should, but may may not. Um, also, Cynthia's Pomeranian was actually a York, uh, Yorkie Terrier. Okay, that I didn't pick up on. Uh, when Jesus, uh, John Turturro's character, has to go door-to-door sharing that he's a convicted sex offender, he has a large bulge in his tight pants. <laughs> the bulge was created by a bag of birdseed. <laughs> As the dude writes the 69-cent check at Ralph's, like we talked about before, he watches uh, George H.W. Bush give a give the this trans this aggression will not stand press interview live on television president bush gave the interview on the white house lawn in 1990 three days after the iraqi army invaded kuwait the dude's check however is dated september 11th 1991 indicating that the dude is so broke he had to post a 69 cent check by over one year <laughs> the diner in which uh the dude and walter have a cup of coffee during the toe scene is the same diner in later scenes in american history x it is located at wilshire and fairfax in los angeles do you know the name of it uh, Wilshire and Fairfax. We That's drive past damaged. it all. The- no, no, wait. Wilshire and oh, Wilshire and Fairfax. Oh God. Um, it is Johnny's Coffee Johnny's, Shop, which closed. is closed right. and it is always used for, for filming. filming. Right. The man, I say, I, yeah, Oakwood and Fairfax. the man shown bowling in the picture on the dude's wall is Richard Nixon. Nixon was an avid bowler. I did, I did not. That. I, did I did not know, know that. He had a bowling alley installed at the White House. Initially, Alan Klein, a uh, Rolling Stones lawyer, very famous uh, for his work with the Stones, wanted one hundred fifty thousand dollars for the use of dead flowers um, in the movie. But he adored the scene so much, where the dude talks about hating the effing Eagles, he waived the licensing fee. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, according to the, how many of these do you have? Uh, uh, many, <laughs> many. I, I think it's worth this. But this is actually the last one. Okay, it's just the longest. Uh, so it will feel like many. Um, David Huddleston obviously plays uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, the the big Lebowski. He's actually the big Lebowski, not the dude. Uh, According to the e-book, The Dude Abides, um, the casting of Jeffrey Lebowski was one of the last decisions made before filming. Names tossed around included Robert Duvall, who passed because he didn't like the script, Anthony Hopkins, who passed because he had no interest in playing an American, and Gene Hackman, who was taking a break at the time. A second wish list included an oddball who's who of Norman Mailer, George C. Scott, Jerry Falwell, Gore Vidal, Andy Griffith. Jerry Falwell? Yes. Uh, Gore Vidal, Andy Griffith, kind of funny. William F. Buckley, Ernest Borgnine. Um, the ultimate Big Lebowski, however, was Marlon Brando. They oh, wanted God, to have Brando funny. in oh, that, that role. Funny. Uh, eventually, obviously, they ended up with David Huddleston, who was terrific. Great, but Marlon Brando would have been amazing. Like It would have been very similar to the role that Brando played. Um, in the freshman where he was playing Don Corleone, which was brilliant. If you've never seen the freshman, it's find it. It's, it's great. That is, that's an example of a movie that, well, actually Brando helped tank it at the box office by saying it was terrible and then said, actually, no, it's not. I never really kind of didn't quite catch on in the same way that it could have, uh, based on how good it is. Um, I just love it. It's one of these movies where even, you know, Bridges performances is the dude. In his own way, he is, it's a, it's a big performance just of a super mellow guy. But there are so many people in it that are great actors that are given, very clearly given the directive to chew as much scenery as you possibly can. You know, uh, John Goodman, it, go, no, more, more, more. Uh, John Turturro is chewing scenery. Julianne Moore is chewing scenery. Philip I mean, Seymour Hoffman. Chewing scenery. And these guys. Even Tara Reed is right, chewing scenery. With really good dialogue. And just told to go nuts. And it's so much fun to watch. It really is. Clearly having fun making a movie. All right. So, Big Lebowski. Um, Okay. I think that's enough. Yes. All right. We'll see everybody next time.